Lord, we come before you as always as one congregation united in our desire to serve and to do all that you have called us to do. We seek daily the opportunity to live with the mindset of Christ, walking by Christ's example, that you may recognize our devotion to you in how we humbly love our neighbors, seeking nothing for ourselves but closeness to you. We ask that all be united by this one mind that is yours, oriented toward love, and that you will reveal to us that same mind in others that we may all demonstrate the compassion of Christ. May we all come to know this same love that is you and give that love outwardly that all may see you. We ask that you be with us each day, shaping us into more like your servants who carry the discipline to take up our crosses beside you, sell all our possessions and give to the poor with you, leaving our boats and our nets behind, standing up to follow you. Empower us in your spirit and walk with us always. Amen.
Good morning. A reading from Philippians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used with his own, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Change or die? What if you were given that choice? What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said you had to make difficult and enduring changes in the way you think and act? If you didn't, your time would end soon, a lot sooner than it had to. Could you change when change most really mattered? When it mattered most? Do I have your attention? That's actually a quote from a very popular book on business and management. The title, the equally compelling, Change or Die. The title is birthed out of a healthcare study that's been confirmed through numerous follow-up studies. Uh, in the early and mid-2000s, a cardiologist led a study of the uh, what, about 1.4 million heart patients who either had angioplasty or coronary bypass surgery in a given year. And then they sort of tracked their progress toward lifestyle changes that would, in many ways, continue the, the intervention that was made sort of in the moment in surgery. And lo and behold, what they found was that 9 out of 10 patients within two years had stopped moving toward the lifestyle changes like quitting smoking or getting some exercise or reducing your stress, changing your diet, all of the things that are in your control, they, uh, they had ceased to move toward those changes. And in many ways, the, the temporary fix of an angioplasty or a bypass was, while not undone, was certainly not complete. Nine out of 10, when a physician, a surgeon, an authority figure looks you in the eye and says, you will die if you don't make these changes. 
Nine out of ten don't change. Change is hard. We know that change is hard. Even though we're in the midst of so many changes in our daily lives, we know what it's like to be stuck and unwilling and unable to make meaningful change, even when confronted by overwhelming evidence and facts to the importance of making such a change. And so Deutschman unpacks this and looks at the way we make changes in our lives and the means by which we can make meaningful changes. And surprise, surprise, it's not giving people more data. It's not giving people more facts. It's actually a thesis that says that our change is rooted deeply in relationship, in community, and in a transformed frame of mind. And so he gives us, and I'm not going to talk about Deutschmann's book very long, he just gives us three R's to help us think about these things. Relate, that you form a new emotional relationship with a person or with a community that inspires and sustains your hope. I remember talking to someone one time who was just diagnosed with lung cancer and he was down in the doldrums. And when he went for his first chemotherapy treatment at the VA, as he sat in the lobby and looked around, the man sitting next to him, and they started talking, why are you here? Why are you here? And he said, well, I'm starting treatment for lung cancer. And he says, I am too. And he said, how long have you been undergoing these treatments? He said, 12 years. All of a sudden, as they continued to talk, there was an opportunity for hope in making this new and emotional connection with someone else. So he was willing to do what he was advised to do and what he needed to do to stay in the process. The next thing that he gives us after uh, that relationship is repeat. That there are practices and habits that we can cultivate that reshape the trajectory of our lives. I'll never forget Sean Fenton offering his testimony a few years ago about the day he decided he was going to be an Ironman triathlete, north of 50. Insane. But he told us that day, he said, I had already become an Ironman. I just had to take the steps now to make that a reality in my body, in my mind, and in my life. So he started training, and a whole different regimen, got a coach and everything else. And so with these new practices, these new habits, he did the work to transform himself into the vision of what it is he wanted to be. The last is to reframe. To reframe. To begin looking at yourself and your relationship with the world and the community you inhabit in an entirely different way and as you begin to reframe your perspective on yourself and the world and everything in between change happens transformation happens that's Deutschmann's book it's a good book I encourage you to read it we're reading good words this morning words from a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi and today his purpose is abundantly clear he is out to change their minds. And he's out to change our minds. That Greek word that's translated mind here is a way of describing our 
thinking that determines our action. It's not just the rational self. We might call it a mindset. It's the seat of our moral and ethical judgment. It's the seat of our commitment. It is who we are at our core. In the Old Testament, they used a different bodily metaphor. Instead of talking about mind, they would talk about heart. And so whether in the New Testament you're talking about the mind or in the Old Testament you're talking about the heart, the Bible is speaking about that fundamental foundation upon which we build our lives, that internal frame of reference through which we perceive everything else. And being a follower of Jesus requires a radical reorientation of mind. And it results in an equally radical reorientation of our living. It is, as one commentator called, a mental transplant in which the mind of Jesus who came into this world and lived and died and rose again becomes the mind by which we live, the mind with which we die, and the mind through which we are also raised to new life. But that kind of transformation is very hard to come by. It's like finding a new rhythm. One of the great life-giving pieces of, of church life for me right now is participating in the music ministry. First, because I'm not in charge. So I get to leave a little earlier and I don't have to arrive uh, earlier than to put on my gloves or blow into the horn and follow the leader. But very quickly, I realized I needed to remember what it was like to play music in an ensemble. It's really hard to ring bells if you are looking at the entire score. You have to locate your place in the entire score and you have to count fastidiously. Don't lose place, stay with the beat. If you don't do that, you will arrive late or you will depart early. And as Ted said, a bell, a late bell is better never rung. And to make it even more challenging, back, back here, I sit next to some really elegant players with keen minds. You know, Brian and Amanda and, and Mary Martha, with all of their experience and with just the empirical precision with which they think about things, don't ever seem to get lost. I get lost all the time. I get lost counting one measure in my own head. Just listening and sort of falling in love with the music. And I realized, as I'm doing music, that so often what I want to do is play the music the way I believe it ought to be <laughs> instead of the music as it's being directed for us. And finding that pulse, finding that rhythm, and you should see Keith and Ted and Mackenzie and how hard they work to provide us with that beat with that pulse. And once you find it and you're in that pocket, it makes all the difference. But until you find that beat, until you're in rhythm with that whole community of players, you're always going to feel off, left out, and eternally frustrated. Today I want us to think about the rhythm of our life together as a church listening for the pulse and looking for the direction of the one who is providing us that beat. What is it going to take for us to begin to live in the rhythm 
That is the mind of Christ. What is it going to take for us to change our minds out of our self-centered, church the way it ought to be, Christopher the way he ought to be, and to listen for the beat? Some people try and do that by force. They just simply come at you and try and overwhelm you. Some people try and convince us with sheer logic or they'll manipulate our, our emotions with, with advertising. But Paul is convinced that the one thing that has the real power to change us and to change our minds is love. That's how he begins this section of the letter. Being of the same mind is the same thing as having the same love. And that word, agape, love, is a word that's very familiar to many of you after your years of study. And it's the word the New Testament uses to describe the unique divine love that transforms our minds into the mind of Christ. So I want us to remember a few things about how that love goes to work in us. And the first is the broadest base definition that the love that has the power to change our minds and to change the mind of this world is nothing less than that which is defined by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Scholars tell us that this section of the New Testament is not original to Paul. Instead, it is a creed. It might even be a hymn that was used in early church worship to define who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And I can only help but, again, think of Ted and Mackenzie and Keith just waving their arms furiously, banging away, trying to provide us the beat. Paul is trying to give the church the rhythm and the way and the will of self-emptying love that God shows us in Jesus. He's trying to get it into our hearts. He's trying to get it into our heads and banging away on the rhythm of God's love until we start to think and we start to act and we start to live in that same rhythm with the heartbeat of God's love that's found in Jesus. And so to listen to these words, to ponder them, and to apply our lives to them is to allow the rhythm of God's love in Christ to become the rhythm by which we live our lives. And so it's important for us to realize that when we use the word love, we're not talking about anything that's saccharine or sentimental now. We're talking about nothing less than the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The second thing we need to remember is that the sacrificial love of God has the power to change our minds and it is discovered not alone, but it is discovered in a community. One of the great limitations of our English translations of the Bible is that we have one word, you, that talks about you, the individual, you, Ned. You, Dana, happy birthday on Valentine's Day, by the way, you're welcome. And then you, plural, you, Yates. Now in the South, we have a great workaround. It is what? When I'm talking to all of you, I say, y'all. And, and for some reason, biblical translators do not opt for y'all where they should. Philippians 2 is not addressed to individuals trying to make their own way as Christians in the world. It is written and was read to a gathered community. It was gathered 
as the church. He's saying, y'all be of the same mind. Y'all have the same love. Y'all be of one accord and one mind. Y'all have amongst yourselves the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Agape, this love, is best experienced in community with other disciples of Jesus Christ. And there's even more for us to ponder in days and in weeks to come that unless we think the love of Christ is simply contained here within the boundaries of this fellowship or any fellowship, we're hopelessly mistaken that the call to follow Jesus is in many ways a call to expand our imagination to see the y'all as being possible among us all. Y'all really may mean all. If Jesus' words to Nicodemus were true, God so loved the world that the love that is found and meets us at the cross, that sacrificial love of God is not just for you or for us as one community, but it is for the world. And together it is a time for us to practice those things that will change our way of walking in the world. Sometimes our, our repetition in worship gets on on people's nerves if you like everything to be lively if you like everything to be spontaneous or extemporaneous but this is just training for how we live the rest of our lives we begin and we end with prayers why are your days between sundays bounded in prayer we turn and we return to the scriptures not because we're unoriginal but because it is teaching us how to found our lives in daily living on the word of God. We say disciples need to bring an offering to worship. Why? Because the church needs the money? Well, yeah, kind of. But it's way beyond that. And you were too mature to know any different. It is teaching you to relate differently to your material possessions. To relate differently to your money. To live a life that is positioned and poised for generosity when it really matters. And as you practice your generosity here, it creates a generous life between Sundays. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. What we practice in community is teaching us the way of Jesus in the world. So Nicholas Waltersdorf, a great theologian who taught at Yale for many years, says, it seems to me that the Christian life, when properly lived, is a rhythmic alternation between turning toward God in worship and running toward the world in love, with a passion for justice between congregation and dispersal, liturgy and labor, worship and work, adoration and obedience. Can you feel the pulse? The love that has the power to change minds is defined by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That sacrificial love has the power to change our minds in community. And that love has the power to change our minds. It takes action finally and fully in our daily lives. Danny said it so well. And that little hyphen between our birthday and our death day. That hyphen really matters. And how we conduct ourselves is going to be equally formative. It is trained in community, and it is risked and expressed out in the world. You remember the story of the good Samaritan? You know how that story goes. A lawyer 
asks Jesus what the greatest commandment of the law is. And so he mashes up Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer wants to ask a clarifying question. Lawyers are always asking clarifying questions. Who's my neighbor? And in response, Jesus tells a story about a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and there he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest and a Levite, good, upstanding, religious people, passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, an outsider, from the other side of the social and racial divide in a very segregated society, saw that beaten man. And with very strong language, Jesus goes on to describe how the Samaritan man has pity on him. The Samaritan picks the man up. He bandages his wounds. He brings him to an inn. He takes care of him overnight. Then he leaves his credit card, metaphorically speaking, to pay for anything else that the innkeeper might incur in caring for him. And then Jesus turns the lawyer's question inside out. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The lawyer replies, the one who showed him mercy. And I'm going to give you the Christopher Ingram Amplified translation now. If you do a little study, that word for mercy is a word that shows up throughout the New Testament, not related to human mercy, but God's own mercy. If we're going to read this for all it's worth, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The one who showed him God's mercy. And Jesus said, you were right. Now the most powerful words in the entire incident. Go and do likewise. That parable is a description of the difference of a reframed, transformed mind who no longer saw individuals or strangers or us or them, but instead a person so deeply moved with compassion that he took action and made one person suffering his own. It's the difference between the mind of a person who asks, who is my neighbor, and another person who asks, who will be a neighbor to that person. Talk about reframing. So Deutschman is on to something. Relate, repeat, reframe, relate to the love that is shared and disclosed fully in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Repeat in the presence of a community those practices of love that will transform our lives and be willing to allow that transformation to reframe your view of yourself, of the world, and of the God who made us. And so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. That is the story of how God's love in Jesus Christ can change our mind. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a slave being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even 
the cross's death. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Love. That love of God Jesus Christ is like that. It has the power to change minds. It has the power to change the world for good. Amen.